Welcome to the Quantum Growth Podcast, empowering financial advisors to build practices for the 21st century by providing insights and interviews on leadership, strategy, and practice management. Now here are your co-hosts, Shenandoah Connor and Barron's Hall of Fame top advisor, Jonathan Cutton. Well, thank you everyone for joining us on the podcast today. My name is Shenandoah Connor, and I'm here with my co-host, Jonathan Cutton. And today we have a very exciting guest. I'm actually going to hand it off to Jonathan to introduce him because he has a pretty strong relationship and background with him. So Jonathan, if you want to go ahead and introduce our special guest today. Absolutely, Shen. Thanks uh, for the introduction. And I am very excited uh, to have with us here today uh, one of my mentors and someone that I have the utmost of respect for, a doctor, although he's not really a doctor, I like to call him Dr. Ray Kelly. Uh, Ray is a doctor in my mind. So uh, a little background, I know of Ray probably for 20 plus years as uh, a bit of a leadership legend uh, within my current broker dealer. And I was fortunate enough uh, several years ago, uh, Ray came back to the field and I think he'll tell you a little bit about his background, but uh, was hired in my region as our local leadership in charge of probably 400 plus advisors. And uh, Ray and I got to know each other really well uh, over that time, although in a limited basis because he had 400 advisors to, uh, you know, to support and lead. Um, and fortunately for me, uh, Ray decided to go back to what I believe is his passion, which is uh, really focusing on coaching advisors. Uh, and uh, as you'll hear some of here, a lot of leadership development, which uh, as many of you know, I think is a real big key uh, to success. So uh, with that being said, I was able to engage Ray for my firm and really excited to have him here as a guest. So Ray, if you wouldn't mind, maybe you can say a quick hello. And uh, I wanted again, thank you for uh, joining us today. Oh, you're welcome, John and Shannon Doyle. It's great to be here. Yeah, a little bit about my background before I, I met John is uh, I grew up in the country in, in, in Michigan. I was a finance major and one of the things you're going to see kind of a track record in my career, sometimes I go away from things. I grew up on a farm and what I never wanted to do was uh, farming work. I remember <laughs> failing hay one day and working for eight hours straight and that's hot labor and hard labor and making, uh, I think, three bucks an hour. And mm -hmm. I just remember, I'm not going to do this the rest of my life. So I ended up going to the University of Michigan, got a finance degree. And when I was there, uh, little small company called IDS Financial Services came to campus interviewing and they had finance in their name and I had finance in my name. I thought we had a match. I had no idea what they did. I just wanted to get a job and I ended up moving to Minneapolis and my first job at IDS was in the internal audit department, John. And what I learned there is what I never ever wanted to do again. Uh, I spent 13 months, three weeks and about six hours in audit. Uh, I couldn't stand it, but the good thing was I learned what the company did. We helped people achieve their financial goals and dreams. And I said to myself, I want, I need to get on the client facing side of the business. And to make a long story short, I did that. Uh, I spent about 13 years down in Texas. I just found out Shenandoah is a Texas native right now, but I spent the majority of my career down there helping advisors grow their businesses. Um, and I did such a bang up job. The company said, why don't you come back to Minnesota, help us uh, run it nationally. So I did that for a number of years. And then I left that um, and I went into an executive coaching position. And what I really enjoy doing, John, to your point is my passion is helping individuals reach their potential, kind of instill that confidence and inspires the greatness that's inside all of us to do these different things. I got a chance to work with you in, in New York Metro for a couple of years, it was my great pleasure, but you're one of many of my, what I call executive coaching clients, where I'm helping people grow a culture of leadership, where we develop leaders. Uh, specifically, I work with the CEOs of many of these businesses to develop themselves, but more specifically, to develop a culture where they're developing everyone on their team. And that's what I get to do with Cutting Wealth Management and your team. So that's my passion right there. And um, I'm actually very privileged to be here today to talk about uh, whatever you guys want to talk about today. Excellent. No, that's great to hear. And um, not only do we have the Texas connection, I was actually born on a dairy farm. So when you were talking about Bale and Hay and all of that, I, 
I've been there, I, I know, and many of my uh, injuries came from the farm too. So not only is it low paying work, it's dangerous work too. So <laughs> finance is, a, it, it can be dangerous in its own ways, but you know, less, uh, less uh, heat exhaustion <laughs> as well. But uh, excellent. Well, like you said, you've worked with um, over the last couple of decades, you work with thousands of advisors first within an, another organization and now as an executive coach, what have you learned or what have you seen consistently in working with these advisors? Either things they're doing right, things they're doing wrong, where they're getting hung up? Yeah, great question. Um, first and foremost, and I won't go into deep in this first point, it was just every single one of these advisors, as you're aware, are, are, are wired differently. They have different motivations, they have different values, different passions and stuff like that. So in order to lead them, you have to lead them differently. But there's some commonalities, I think, from a, as a whole, the listening audience can, can learn from. Because I believe advisors go through stages, okay? And I don't think it's just advisors. I think it's, it's all different careers go through these different stages. But I specifically saw this, this way of thinking uh, that people had as they went through the career. And John, I know you'll, you'll remember these. You may not remember the exact moment, but you might. Because the first stage an advisor goes through is that questioning of themselves, can I do this? Can I make it? And actually, this is a stage that some people never get through because they actually get to the point where they go, I, I, I can't do this. This is a very difficult career, especially in the beginning. And then if you're lucky, you break through to the stage, I can do this. Okay. And you may even remember that moment uh, when you, you've what it may have been a certain client you obtained, you hit a certain award, you've you hit the milestone of something and go, gosh darn, I can do this. Then at some point in time, it's typically between two and five years in the business, a person actually gets to a point where they go, I can thrive at this. Gosh darn it, I, I'm starting to get this. I'm getting a handle on this. There's nothing that's really being thrown at me that I can't handle. I can thrive at this. And there's a lot of stages after that. The stage that I focus most of my time is when these advisors are, they're thriving They've already hired an assistant or two, and now they need to make the transformation. And this is the biggest transformation, Shenandoah, is when a person goes from um, running a practice to running a small firm. They have to go from being an advisor to being a leader or a CEO. And that's a giant uh, step. And quite frankly, it's just a different way of thinking. And I'll ask John a question. I know, John, do you remember any of these stages in your career where you went from, I can do this to, or I don't even know if I can do this, to, I can do this, et cetera. Yeah, no, Ray, um, you know, really well said. And um, you, you got me thinking a little bit. So, you know, in, in the last podcast, one of the things that I referenced was, um, having an opportunity at one point to acquire a practice, the first practice to acquire fairly early in my career. Um, and it forced me, Evan, who you know now, uh, took on that acquisition. And um, you know what, what that taught me was that I did not need to do everything in the business, right? So I didn't need to you know, bust the tables and be the chef and, and be the maitre d' and uh, et cetera. Um, and when Evan was able to do that, something kind of clicked for me, right? And that click was that really, I was a business owner, I, you know, and, and again, I wasn't just someone who needed to do everything and, and be the practitioner, um, but really to put that CEO hat on. And from that point forward, my focus really changed. But yeah, I mean, I, I think back to a lot of things, you know, I, I, I'll just share one other quick one. Um, but I remember sitting at my first national conference ever, right? And um, I was sitting next to my wife. This is probably 1996. Um, and the uh, advisor who was the top advisor in the firm that year made a speech. Um, and I remember my wife actually saying to me, you'll be up there one day, um, which, which actually did wind up happening, as you know, Ray. Um, at the time, I don't know if I really believed it, but you know, one of the things I've stole from you, like so many things, is you get to know Ray, and uh, Ray doesn't know this yet, but I, I plan to have him on a lot. <laughs> um, but uh, as you get to know Ray, Ray has a lot of really um, kind of good little acronyms and kind of sayings that you know stick with you and really resonate. Um, so I'll probably get this one slightly wrong, but you know, one of the things that 
I took away, Ray, is kind of uh, my own words. I say think, act, do, right? So how you think ultimately drives how you act, what your behaviors are, which ultimately is kind of what you do and ultimately who you become. Um, and I think that's a big piece is mindset and um, you know, what you believe and what you vision and, and what you think will happen uh, oftentimes does. So you know, with that, that, that would be a, a great uh, you know, kind of memory of mine of where it sort of clicked for me. Good, that's, your, your wife had some vision. Maybe we hired the wrong person. Yeah, thank, good, yeah, thank, thank goodness someone did for sure. You know, she didn't work on a farm like you guys, so I'm not sure. In, in New York, we don't, uh, not a lot of farms here where I live uh, as a city slicker. That's all right. We won't hold it against you. Uh, but kind of along those lines, I think too, what, what John was talking about and what you set up for us, Ray, is, is really where we see as our advisors are growing and, and the advisors that we work with primarily too are, are at that cusp of making that shift from being an advisor, running a practice to being a CEO, running a business. And so in that shift, what are the biggest hurdles that you see them facing, whether it's a mental shift, whether it's a, a logistical shift? Um, what are those biggest hurdles that you see in your practice, Ray? Yeah, another great question, Shannon Doyle. When, when I think about this, we've created a, at my firm, Think to Perform is the firm, we're coaching consulting business, but we've created this, what we call a transformational scorecard. To John's point, it's ways of thinking that people need to transform that way of thinking in order to change their businesses, to go from running a practice to running a firm. Okay, and there's some key elements and there's six of them we've identified and I'm going to hit on all of them, but I'm going to talk about the first two the most because the first two are by far the biggest things that need to change in order to take it to a whole nother level. And they sound simple and a lot of people have worked on them, but they're huge when done well. Okay, and the first one is defining a business vision and the values in which you're going to operate. I call it vision, mission and values. Okay, sound really simple, but I believe the biggest impact of going from a practice to running a firm, because often when you're running a practice, it's you and a couple other people, okay? And then all of a sudden you're away, does everyone know what direction everyone's going towards the vision and why we're doing it, the mission statement, and what guides our decision-making when I'm not away, or I am away, our values. So learning how to do this, I remember again, when I was a, a, a young leader at uh, this company called IDS, the CEO was a guy named Harvey Gollum. And Harvey ended up running uh, American Express and several other companies. But one of the things that Harvey used to do in every one of his speeches, he used to talk about vision, mission, and values. And when I was a young uh, leader in the organization, I'd watch these speeches and think to myself, he needs a new speechwriter. He talks about the same darn things every single time. Vision, mission, and values. I didn't get it, okay? He was connecting everything that we were doing in an organization. I mean everything back to the vision, back to our values. And it was back to, I didn't get it. And this is one of the things that these leaders need to do if they want to take their business from a practice to a firm is making that switch. Another one more tactical thing that we found that people need to do is client segmentation, really define who their ideal client is going to be and how they're going to serve that client, okay? And actually saying no to a bunch of other people that are, may already be clients just because back in those early stages when you're trying to decide, can I make it, can I, can, can I make it, you're bringing on whoever you could bring on. Eventually, you have this big group of people you're serving and it's time to actually start thinking like a true business leader, going, who is our target client? These two things are really simple, but it's hard for people to give up that old way of thinking because that old way of thinking worked for them. So I'll give an example. I, I probably said it to John at some point in time. What's the difference between a million dollar producer and a $2 million producer? Simple math. It's a million. But the hard part of the question is this, which million is it? Is it the first million or the second million? Most people think it's the first million, okay? Or actually the second million. They think, hey, the difference between us, I got to get another million. I would actually argue you have to give up your way of thinking that led to that first million to get to your second million. 
And it's, this is what this transformational scorecard's all about. It's a way of thinking. So some of the other things on the scorecard, Shenandoah, are aligning responsibilities, compensation, rewards with success of the firm. When you're running a practice, you're not aligning responsibility, compensation, or rewards. You're hiring an assistant, and you're determining what they're going to do and what you're going to do. Two different ways of thinking versus aligning our reward system, our responsibilities. Okay. Much bigger scope. The next thing that's on there is creating and executing a succession plan. When you're running a practice, you say to yourself, hey, if something happens to me, who's going to take over my practice? Okay? Versus when you create a succession plan, you're thinking about generations. How do I serve these clients for the next hundred years? How do I create a multi-generational business model that will continue to serve these clients beyond the time my name's on the door? That's complete. Two different ways of thinking about a business. And the last two things are just leading and developing high potential staff. Okay, how do you develop your people? And finally, identifying and acquiring business opportunities. You're no longer thinking about where my next client's coming from. You're thinking about strategies in which to build and grow your business. Two completely different ways of thinking. And when you were a million dollar producer, you thought one way. And when you want to get to 2 million, to 20 million, to 200 million, you got to think a completely different way. That's hard for people to do. And that's what I've seen. Yeah, absolutely. It's that old adage, what got you here won't get you there. But having that transformation framework, that scorecard that looks at those key elements that are going to help you make that leap is, is that's excellent. I haven't seen it outlined that way in a way that looks beyond just the, um, just the individual, just the leader, but you're looking at the organization, you're looking at the strategy, you're looking at different elements of it as well and the operations. And um, Jonathan, I don't know if you can relate to this and how you've applied this in, in your practice, if you want to give us some context there, because I think you, you have been working this model pretty well. Sure. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, Ray, when you talked about um, thinking Harvey needed another speechwriter. I, I, I hate to say it, but I used to think you needed another speechwriter <laughs> as well with all this vision, mission, values over and over. But, you know, I say that as a joke because eventually it clicked, right? And, you know, again, the whole, the whole purpose of why I wanted to have this podcast and why we have this podcast um, is to share the learnings that I've had from great folks like Ray and others uh, throughout my career that have had a big impact. Uh, and that's a big one. I used to sit in the room and when I heard vision, mission, values, I heard quirky, that's not real business. No one wants to do that stuff. Um, there was a time where I was not an advocate of business planning. It was just do as much business as you can, right? And I think as you grow the business, I've seen, um, and, and I give this uh, as a testament to your leadership, Ray, um, our whole organization is so focused on vision, mission, and values to the point where we're about 47, 48 people all in the organization. Um, everyone from our receptionist to our most senior advisor and leadership team uh, could tell you the vision, mission, value uh, of, the, of the firm if you stopped them in the hallway. Uh, and we actually, one of the things, uh, and Ray, maybe you could talk a little bit about this. You talk about communication times 10, right? Which again, something I thought you might've been going a little senile and thinking, man, this guy just says the same thing over and over. But when you actually start to practice it, you realize um, a little bit about what, what communicating times 10 is, right? Maybe you could share with the group a little bit about your kind of thoughts there. Yeah, and a couple things come to mind. And I just listened to another podcast and Patrick Alencioni was on it and he talked about the part of your role is to be the chief communications officer. Okay, a big part of being the leader of these organizations is you have to over communicate. And back to the vision, mission and values, I believe is at the foundation of where you need to over communicate. A good friend of mine, um, sold his company a few years ago. It was called Modern Survey. It's a, a company that specializes in employee engagement. And every year they, they're one of those companies that surveys all the employees at organizations. And every year they ask people the question, how engaged are you at work and why are you so engaged? And one of the things they found was the people in an organization that can espouse, can share with you what the vision, mission, and values are 
are 51 times, not 51%, 51 times more likely to be fully engaged than the people who can't share with you what the vision, mission, or values of the organization are. And I know that's a big reason why John and his organization is that they drill on this. They make sure everyone in the organization knows what the vision, mission, and values are. And not just be able to point them out, but know what they mean and look for opportunities to recognize those visions, how something's in alignment with it or the values of the, the organization. Okay. It's plastered all over their walls. It's on their communications. And it's because when people can connect what you're doing every single day, they, they get much more engaged into that bigger purpose, that bigger mission. And that's kind of the difference between being a financial advisor and actually being a leader of an organization. It's two different ways of thinking. And to John's point, he hears me say this is don't assume people get it the first time. I didn't get it the first time. I didn't get it the second time. I didn't get it the 10th time. I thought this vision stuff was, that's, that was Mar what Martin Luther King did. He had a vision. He had a dream. I didn't get it. Now I get it. Okay, I understand how important it is to have a vision that compels people and pulls people. Okay, they want to be part of something bigger than themselves. Okay, and don't assume everyone will get it the first time because I didn't. And I know John didn't either. Uh, so it's back to over communicate. Yeah, absolutely. I think to that point, um, and what John was mentioning to you and with a lot of our advisors is they feel that that vision, mission, values, oh, that's nice and fluffy. It's feelings. It's it's nice to have, or it's just great marketing copies, something to throw out there just to have that kind of PC or PR component to it. But it really has a strategic element to it, that it's that underlying giving you direction for your firm, but also helping you develop a culture that can help you achieve that direction, help you achieve those goals. And like you said, even tying it back to rewards, incentives, and all, all of your little other elements of the, uh, the transformational scorecard, having that defined first, everything else can fall into place. You know what you're doing in every other area. Uh, and I'm assuming that's that's what you're seeing is once you kind of help them make that click, you said it was the biggest change, number one being getting that defined, the vision, mission, values. Um, is it so much defining it or is it getting them to see the value of establishing that first? Uh, it's a combination of both because back to John, John's a great example. Initially, you may just think it's just a buzzword. Okay. And there's a, you get them to see there's a value to having it around when you're not around. So it's, it's being reinforced 365, 24 seven, when you have a, a written vision that you can espouse and share with people, but then it's back to, it's gotta be compelling mm -hmm. just to have a vision and it's just to have a vision is not there and all of a sudden it has to attract people and pull people. And what do these values really mean? Of course, I believe in integrity. Of course, I believe in family, whatever it is, but it's back to connecting it back to everything you do within the firm. And that's where the real value comes is when you start to lasso backwards and forwards, what you do to the mission, to the vision, to the values. Yeah, Ray, it, com it comes together well, um, you know, just to, uh, to share with the audience here. So as a firm, um, my firm's values are leadership, family, integrity, security, and happiness, right? So we, we go through a process in the practice uh, where the whole firm goes through almost a voting process. And we kind of sit in the boardroom and we hash it out and we go through this, uh, you know, this vetting process to get really uh, focused on what our values are. And we go through that each year now in our, in our um, you know, business planning session. Uh, a lot of that's attributed to, you know, to raise help. Uh, we also with raise help have an inward, um, you know, a, a vision statement, which, you know, I think would be interesting to the group, right? So as, as we're looking to scale our practice uh, and continue to grow, our firm's vision is not, not only is cut and wealth management of Barron's Hall of Fame practice, but we're known industry-wide as a leadership development factory and that we develop what we call internally level five leaders, um, which I think, Ray, would be a great topic uh, at some point to talk a little bit about five levels of leadership as well, which uh, is sort of the system, the leadership system uh, that we run within the practice uh, also. So, you know, Ray, I, I wanted to ask a question because I think as you go into 
you know, uh, vision, mission, values. Um, one of the other things that you had mentioned was that, you know, employee engagement and helping people ultimately be connected to the vision and sort of knowing what they want in their career uh, is an important piece of the puzzle as well. So um, we have this thing that we all learned, I think, through a lot of our mentors, right? A guy by the name of Doug Lenick, who I think is the founder uh, of Think to Perform and uh, someone that I learned a lot from in my career, for sure. And we call it the Woody Woofy process, right? Um, so Woody Woofy is W-D-W, wait, W-D, what do you, Y, W, F, Y, right? Which stands for what do you want for yourself? And I know, Ray, you were really insistent. Uh, and, and I knew what the Woody Woofy process was, but got away from it after years of, of doing it earlier in my career. Maybe you could just briefly share with the group kind of what that is and how that you think provides value to advisors who might have a small staff or a large staff in, in helping them get engaged and leading them properly. Yeah, I, I'll do that. Before that, I'm, I want everyone to write down these numbers because these are, I want you to write two columns, one 1989, one 1999, basically a decade. All right. The first number under 1989, I want you to write 3,500. Under 1999, I want you to write 9,900. Okay. Under the 1989 column, I want you to write 1,425. And under the 1999, I want you to write 1,436. And then under the 89 column, I want you to write 7%. And under 99, I want you to write 61%. Now, let me tell you what those numbers are. Back to what John was talking about, Doug Lenick, who's one of my mentors and uh, was leading the organization at IDS when I started and then became an American Express company. Um, those were the number, 3,500 was the number of advisors that end of 1989 when he became the head of sales for the organization. 9,900 was the number of advisors they had at the end of 19, 10 years later. It was all organic growth. They didn't do acquisitions during that period of time. It was nearly every single person was grown organically. 1,425 was the number of terminations that year. In 1989, 1436, 11 more terminations, but basically three times as many advisors. The 7% and the 61% was the four-year retention rate. Advisors who had started that were still there four years later, 7% pretty much was the industry average in 1989, and that's where IDS was, 7%. 61% was what it was in 1999. Now, the industry had improved. It went from 7% to 14%, but not from 7% to 61%. The number one thing that Doug drove through that organization, and I was a leader during that period of time, was Witty Wiffy, helping people get what they want for themselves. At the foundation for growth for any organization, the foundation for growth is retention. Retention of your clients, retention of your people. And the foundation for retention is helping people get what they want for themselves. Witty Wiffy. And that's what the entire focus was in the organization. It works so well for people like John, he stops doing it, okay? And what I do with a lot of my clients is get them to get back to doing this. Just sit down with your people every single day. And there's what we call the five profoundly simple steps of Woody Woofy, five profoundly simple steps of goal achievement. And it starts with number one, just have a goal. When you think about it, this is what most of the people in our industry do. They sit down with people and they talk about their goal. And step two is have a plan. Let's put together a game plan. But our Woody Woofy is really focused on both professional and personal goals and putting a plan in place for both of those because we found that they're connected. It's really hard to achieve at work when things at home are all crap and vice versa. So we want to make sure as a leader of an organization, we're very aware of both home goals, personal and professional. Step three in the Woody Wiffy process is you implement the plan. This is a business you have to do yourself, but you don't have to do alone. That's one of the reasons why you share it with your go-to leaders. And steps four and five sound the easiest, but I found the most difficult are about controlling direction and throwing off discouragement. And that's one of the things that John has driven through his entire organization is the Woody Wiffy process. 
I don't know if his numbers will be the same as improvement that Doug had, but I don't think they'll hurt. Okay. And it's back to Doug was told by his, his CFO in 1999 that the difference between a 7% retention and a 61% retention was $100 million after tax every single year. Okay. It's probably not that big in each of your organizations yet, but I think foundationally, it's just one of the most important things of helping people get what they want for themselves. Okay. And growth of an organization. And again, thinking like a CEO. How do I make sure every one of these people that work for me is being developed and growing and want to stick around? I hope that's what you were looking for, John. Yeah, Ray, lo love it. And, um, you know, just to kind of drill down a little bit, you know, it's amazing. And whether, whether you have, you know, one employee or 10 or 20 or, you know, three or four, whatever it may be, uh, it's amazing how much you learn when you go through this Woody Woofy process, which again stands for what do you want for yourself, which means what is it that your employee actually wants for his or herself? Um, you find out that you don't really even know the people who work for you. I, I had folks who worked in my organization for over a decade. Um, I didn't know all the interests that they have. I have folks in my organization that play the piano and like to sing and that are wine enthusiasts and meditate and do yoga at that have all these aspirations. And when you connect to your people that way, um, ultimately two things happen. One is they feel much more valued and understood um, and you build a deeper, more meaningful relationship. And two, they actually become a lot more, pro lot more productive uh, for the organization because they are very flattered and engaged in the process knowing that you as their leader really care not just about the quality of their work and how quickly it gets done and um, you know wh whether or not there's a profit center built into the role that they do, um, but they actually care about them as a person. Yeah, I agree, John. And again, for the listening audience, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a quick learning and I want you to self-assess because as I've worked with offices of advisors, practices, teams, et cetera, they all fall under one of three roofs, okay? A vision-based leadership roof, an approval-based leadership roof, or a control-based leadership roof. And let me describe each of those. I'm gonna start with appeasement-based or approval-based. This is where the leader, what they do in their offices is they try to please everyone. They wanna make everyone happy, okay? Their purpose, they don't even know this. They're trying to make everyone happy, but they're trying to avoid conflict. Okay, they don't like the feeling of conflict, so I'll make everybody happy. So what that leads to is a very reactive culture, peasing actions, and it leads to constant unplanned change, chaos. These are the least productive offices long-term, folks. Some of you may have worked for one of these offices, and some of you may be in one of these offices. Because what happens is when you find out someone else is getting something different, they want it different. I see a lot of homes run like this, where the parents try to please the kids. Hey, what do you want for dinner? And one kid wants waffles, and the other kid wants cereal, and the other kid wants steak, and the next thing you know, mom and dad are making three different meals, trying to please everyone. It doesn't work long-term, okay? This is what we're having for dinner. That's more of the vision-based. Let's go to the control-based leader. These sometimes work if the leader's really good. The control-based leader makes the majority, if not all, of the decisions. The conflict in this situation is bossed down, okay? The boss is making the decisions. They see things are off, leader towards follower. People over time feel micromanaged, low empowerment, okay? Low direction in terms of all of this stuff because the leader is making all the decisions. And what happens is these organizations can grow, I call it, until the shoulder width of the leader. Some leaders are really good. They can get 25 people in the organization, but what happens is they go, I'm getting tired. I'm making all the decisions. Movement slows as the organization grows. Let's go to the third group. And this is the group that I recommend to people, and that's the vision-based leader, where the leader actually creates a vision of where we're going and why we're going there and how we're going to do it and who we're going to serve and hear the values that are going to guide our decision-making. Now, what that leads to is anytime an action or behavior is off vision or off values, it leads to conflict. 
but it can be all directions. The culture gets conflict proficient. It is okay if John's receptionist says, hey, John, I noticed you parked in the handicapped parking zone. Hey, I was just coming in for a minute. No, no, John, we don't park in the handicapped parking zone. That is for a handicapped client. You're not one of them, okay? The receptionist can lead up to John, CEO, okay? This leads to proactiveness. It's all directions. Anytime we see something that's on, we're congratulating, off, we're actually pointing it out. We make the right choice more often and it allows us to head in the right direction. And I always tell people the direction is Northeast growth towards the vision. These are the three predominant types of styles of leadership. And I encourage everyone who's listening to self-assess. Okay, which one do you think you're leading? If I asked your people, which one do they think they work in? What would they tell me? Okay, and then it's back to good thing is you get to choose which one do you want to work in. I actually believe the vision-based one is the one that grows most consistently. And part of the vision-based one is what John was talking about is in, at the foundation would be helping people get what they want for themselves. What are you with? Excellent. No, that's great. I, I'm scribbling notes here pretty um, feverishly as you're talking of uh, uh, really great information. And so like you said, you lean towards that vision approach. And so kind of taking a, back, a step back, we've talked about it on a personal level about what your vision is, your goals, and those types of things, the woody woofy. But from an organizational standpoint, what would be the key elements of a quality vision and mission statement? Because this is where I see a lot of people, they just kind of slap something out there without really thinking about it. And it's not something that people can get behind. So what would that criteria be for knowing that you've developed a quality vision and mission to follow? Yeah, another, Shannon, and I know why John has you on this podcast. You asked some really good questions. Um, Surround yourself with very smart people, Ray. A smart man once told me that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here's the thing for all of you. Most people don't spend a lot of time putting together vision, mission, and values. Thus, their skill set to do it is not real strong. When you do it once or twice in your life, it's kind of like if you play golf once or twice in your life. You're not going to be very good the first time, maybe not even the second time. So give yourself a break, all right? This is one of the things that I've learned work with financial advisors to develop a vision for the business. One of the things I, I just go, they're not very good at this. So I help them actually start thinking about what does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? What is all these different things? But give yourself 12 to 18 months to really come up with, I'll call it a final draft, final version of this thing. You want to enroll the people within your organization in their thought process, knowing that they've never done this before for the most part. Okay? Often you want to hire someone who actually can help you through the process through this, but a really good vision, for example, should inspire you, should inspire your organization. This is it's gonna make us reach. It's going to attract people. Um, it's going to make you self-assess, am I living up to this? There's a lot of great examples. If you just Google visions out there and there's a lot of websites and stuff like that, just companies and organizations, you read those and you're gonna go, yeah, that's pretty good. I think one of the most important and underrated ones is a mission statement. Okay, a mission statement is why do we do what we do? Why, 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 why are we doing this? And I think it's real important to understand that. And when you, here's the thing about, if you write this model down, Shenandoah, I want you to write simple, complex, simple. So simple, vertical line, the word complex, vertical line, simple. So let me ask you a question, Shenandoah. What do you prefer? Simplicity or complexity? Always prefer simplicity. <laughs> yeah. Especially people in sales, we prefer simplicity. What happens when things get too complex? It's hard to understand. It's hard to get behind it because you, you can't see and comprehend all the pieces. You got it. A lot of nothing happens when it gets too complex. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we prefer simplicity. But there's a famous quote by a guy named Oliver Wendell Holmes, who used to be a Supreme Court justice around 1900. And he said this, he said, I wouldn't give a fig for simplicity on the near side of complexity, but I'd give my right arm for simplicity on the far side. 
And what he was saying is sometimes you say something, hey, vision, mission, and values, just like John and I, the first time we heard it, it, was, it wasn't worth a fig, okay? Once you work through it, you go through the pain of working on the words and what does it exactly look like and feel like, what's it going to attract and all these different things. And when you get to the far side, it's worth your right arm. You go, this is it. I've done this a few times with my organizations and it was painful to get through the complexity. It's the same thing that a lot of you go through when you go through client segmentation or your service model. You got to go through all this documentation. How are we going to do this? And then when you get to the far side and go, this is how we're going to do it. It's wonderful because everyone has clarity of where we're going. It's worth your right arm. And that's the same thing about vision, mission, and values. I got to tell you, it's for most of you, you'll only do it once or twice in your careers and it's going to be frustrating and tough. Have someone help you through it. And, but you have to go through it. And part of the wonder is when you get to the far side, because you've gone through all that pain, it's worth your right arm. And that's my advice for everyone. Yeah, Ray, I'm, I'm listening to you and kind of thinking through our process of going through it as a firm. Um, and you're right. It took us about 18 months. Um, we changed it a bunch of times. Um, but we are so dialed in as a firm right now that our mission, our vision, our values guides us in every decision that we make, right? And you know, it's interesting, I'm sitting here thinking, if I'm a listener to the podcast right now, right? And you know, wherever you are in your career, you're in the business a few years, a decade, two decades, you do 300,000, a million, 5 million, 10 million, whatever it may be in revenue, trying to put myself in the seat. And I think what a lot of this comes down to is you have to be ready to actually hear it. You have to be ready to actually change and you have to give it time to sink in. Um, you know, cause I, I even think to go back a bit when you were talking a little bit earlier um, about the different kind of ways of leadership, right? Um, and I go back to sort of that control-based leadership uh, or that vision-based leadership. You know, and then you start to think about things like self-awareness, right? So, you know, I think about my business probably five years ago, and I think I was running a control-based shop, and I didn't know it. I, I thought I was super approachable, and we were talking about vision, and everyone, you know, kind of knew where we were going. And in my mind, to use your words, Ray, we were all headed northeast. Um, but as I actually started to go through vision, value, mission, Woody Woofy, what I was really able to understand is why people were following. They were following because I was the boss, right? They weren't necessarily following because they connected to it and they actually fully understood what was in it for our clients, what was in it for them, their families, and ultimately the firm. And I think once those dots start to connect, um, it becomes, to your point, um, that simplicity, right, becomes unbelievably valuable and it just becomes the wiring of the organization and it becomes where it is everyone's trying to go together. And it's really, really powerful when, when you get there. Yeah, and it's also, it's, we do what we do because we've done. What that means is we do what we do because it worked for us. All right. And a big part of it, John's right on. When I first met John, it was a John said culture. John says, every time I talk to one of his people, they go, I, I need to check with John on this. I need to check with John on this. And it, back to what John was saying, I wish people would make more decisions around here. Okay. I wish they'd just take initiative. They'd do this and that. And you're just like, you've created what you've created, John. And that's where John going, oh, yes, it's the leader. It's always the leader you're kind of like, I've created this. Now it's your job to uncreate it and create something new. So John can actually tell you, it's not easy, folks. People are wired to check with John, okay? And it's just like, John appreciates it because he feels valued because they're checking with me. But at the same time, he really, really, as the organization grows, they can't continue to ask the CEO every question. You, you don't have time. We gotta like we gotta have people responsible for things and you own this and you drive it. Align with this vision, this mission statement, and make the decisions based on these values. Anything that's aligned with that, go for it. 
Um, and it just takes a while to, to disconnect uh, that way of thinking. And I think it's real important back to John is for all of you to become self-aware. And John's just saying it. If most people, when they're the CEOs of these businesses, think it's a vision-based, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm that one. And their organization's just shaking their head going, no. It's a Rich says, it's a Sarah says. Um, oh, it's not what I want. It's what you have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, like you said, that self-awareness, but also making sure that the, that the organization is on the same page as you. But I think a really important point that you brought up in all of this is that transformation is not overnight and it's not going to happen quickly. And it is a painful process, but it's worth it. Um, because in my experience in consulting and things like that, and, and what I see the expectation being both when I was within an organization and as an external consultant is they expect to have a workshop and then they issue a memo and here's the vision and everybody's going to get on board and wham, bam, it's done. And really it just ends up in a, you know, a, a drawer somewhere collecting dust and everybody's like, oh, here comes another workshop. We're going to, at least we'll get free lunch and get out of work for a day, but we're going to have to, you know, sit here and talk fluff and do icebreakers. And that's not what it is. It's a, it's an ongoing process. And when you do it right, you do it well and you have someone guiding you through it um, it's the, the ROI really, really is there, um, in terms of the peace of mind that comes from having that direction and knowing where you're going as a leader, but as an organization, when you're part of an organization and you know where the organization is going, you know what they stand for, you know, how things operate, um, as an employee or, or somebody within the organization, you're able to breathe a sigh of relief. You have that psychological safety that you need to be able to perform well. Um, but then too, because you have that direction and there's that improved decision-making when you're dealing in situations like we're dealing with now the COVID and things where, where things change rapidly, um, you can make decisions that aren't going to be to the detriment of the organization because you're, you're on the same page, you know, okay, this is going to still be in line with our vision, mission values. Uh, so just the, the, the value in terms of long-term, but also being able to deal with short-term changes is, is tremendous. So I wanted yeah. to be able to point that out for us. Yeah, thanks for doing that. Because one of the things that, for the listeners, again, um, there's an advantage of being in a smaller organization and advantages of being in part of a, a much larger organization. Let me talk about this change process that you go through. When it's you and you're an assistant or you and a couple other people, okay, it's like being in a, a, a motorboat, an outboard motor where with the change of a wrist, flick of a wrist, you go, hey, I want to go from north to west. You flick your wrist and you go a different direction. That's like running a small practice. As a leader, you can change your mind and the next day change the direction of your organization with just your mind changes because it's just you and your assistant. You just have to communicate it to one person. All of a sudden, you have an organization of eight or ten people. It's like a pontoon boat. Okay, the change from north to west, you have to turn the wheel. And if you don't communicate, hey, hang on, a bunch of people are going to lose their seats. Okay, their drinks are going to fall over and stuff like that. When you start running a bigger and bigger organization, it's like an aircraft carrier. In order to turn from north to west, you have to communicate to multiple people, multiple departments. You got to let the kitchen know we're about ready to turn because they're in the middle of cooking a meal and stuff like that. We don't want everything falling. We don't want fires down there. We got to talk to the engine room. We got to have all the sailors. It's basically massive communication. And this is, but the thing about the aircraft carrier, when it starts going in the right direction, it's really hard to get it off. When you're in that little boat, a wave can knock you off. A pontoon boat, it takes a bigger wave, it can dishevel you. So there's advantages and disadvantages of the boat, but the big thing in terms of that communication process, it's so different. And again, the reason why a vision we're heading northeast. That aircraft carrier, everyone on it knows the direction we're going. We may have to make slight adjustments because of an iceberg, the Titanic. Mm -hmm. um, you have to change directions a little bit. But back to just know that the, the value of those things. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. I'm sorry, go ahead, John. Yeah, no, my, my apologies. Yeah, I think, um, I think you're spot on as usual. I think about, um, you know, advisors in general, right? And I think regardless of the size or your length of service, right, in the business, the quicker you recognize these things 
Um, and it's, it's probably a lot easier to execute the smaller you are, right? Yeah. So yes. Focus more on, on this vision-based leadership over the last four or five years. Um, it was a big boat to move. Uh, we're moving it. We still have some work to do. Um, but the, you know, the impact is enormous. And I think that would be you know, my message uh, to the audience here is regardless of the size of your business, if, if you can start to develop these systems and these processes and that, you know, specifically a vision uh, based way of leadership uh, and develop your people to be a true partner and teammate in your firm, um, as you scale and as you grow, everything just gets multiplied a lot more quickly because everyone's rowing in the exact same direction and everybody is super focused on the end goal, right? Which is ultimately um, tying back into that vision, mission, right? And values. So, you know, with that being said, um, I just took a, a brief look at the time here. And while I would love to do this for another couple of hours, um, I do want to be conscious, Ray, of your time uh, and also the audience's time. So, you know, Ray, any final thoughts that you had or anything that you wanted to share with the audience that we might not have asked you about today? Uh, this is not easy, folks, but it's, it's our, our, how does Doug Gladick likes to say, this is uh, simple, but not easy. Um, when you really think about having a vision-based culture, okay, values-based culture, simple stuff, tremendous difference in terms of results, not necessarily tremendous difference in terms of the work the leader has to do, okay? Just different type of work, not more hours, just different work. And that's my, my big thing for you is changing that way of thinking leads to a different way of acting, which will lead to a different result. Excellent. Well, that was a great way to end us off, Ray. Um, I would like for you to kind of tell everybody where they can find you if they want to connect with you and learn more about you and, um, you know, online, on the web, wherever you may live. <laughs> yeah, probably the easiest thing is you can either go to think to perform the word think, the number two, perform.com, or my email is just artkelly at think to perform.com. Easiest way to get a hold of me. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Again, I took so many notes today and we look forward to uh, having you back on the show very quickly because I think we have many more things to, to cover. You, you've got so many little nuggets in there that we can dive deeper into. So thank you, everyone. We will be including all of the links in the show notes and we look forward to having you back next week. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find the episode show notes and subscribe for updates by visiting cuttonconsultinggroup.com forward slash podcast. Make sure to subscribe and download the episodes on your favorite podcast app, and we'll see you next week.